0: Our hearts are thankful, grateful uh, to know that you sit on the throne of this world. Lord, there's hurricanes, there's, there's political upheaval, there's question marks all over the place, and yet there is one area in which we have full confidence, Lord, that we have no need to worry, and that is you sit on the throne. And so, Lord, this morning we lift our hands up to you We have praised you, we give all praise to you, but Lord, we also lift our hearts, we bow our heads, we bow our lives, and we give them over to you, high king forever, the one who sits on that throne, and we love you. Thank you, God, for all that you have done and for who you are. We just pray that as we open up your word, as we talk about your church, God, that we would be convicted, Holy Spirit, that we would be challenged in our own presuppositions, that our, our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened, our hearts would be opened to see and to understand and to know who you are better, God, and to know who you say we are as well. We give this time to you. Lord, we're here. We're expectant. We're listening. We're waiting. Work in our hearts and our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you have a seat this morning, why don't you say hello to somebody who's around you? Well, I love it here in Grove City, I love my city. I know as a kid, right? You want to be somewhere else. Everybody wants to go to someplace cool. All right? Grove City's cool. I like it here. I I realized this week, I've been here for 13 years full-time, which is really the same amount of time that I lived in my hometown, Worcester, 13 years full-time, which is kind of crazy. And I've been fortunate to grow up into two wonderful places, but they are different. And as I've traveled around a little bit, I've realized there's some unique things about Worcester, my hometown, that I've come to appreciate. One of those things is the architecture. Growing up in Worcester, I thought that this was normal, but you drive around in different neighborhoods and houses and streets, and there are all different types of houses, all different types of architecture. On one street, you'll see a colonial-style house next to a big brick ranch house next to a you know, a a craftsman or a mid-century modern, all different colors and shapes and sizes. And then I moved to Grove City and I realized that's not normal. Grove City developed very differently than that, right? We've got these big, sprawling subdivisions and the builders only let you choose from a limited number of options, right? A limited number of types of siding and, and a limited number of colors. And so while we have these beautiful houses in Grove City, nothing necessarily stands out. At least that's my excuse for getting lost all the time when I, got, when I moved here. And I've been thinking about that because recently we've been thinking about as a church adding our own architecture to the Grove City landscape, building our building It's been on my mind. It's been uh, occupying my time at work, this this idea of a building. I have nothing new to share on that. All right, I'll start there. But I do want to just tell you that this past week, I had a moment where it just caused me to worship, and I thought I would pull back the curtain for you guys, and hopefully it causes you to worship as well. Because I've been planning this series since February or March, this idea of a house of God. And back then, as I was praying, Lord, what is it that that you want us to to talk about as a church? What do you want to teach us? I felt that God was impressing upon my heart this idea that he is much less concerned with the type of church building that we're going to be in than he is the type of church that's going to move into that building. And I felt God impressed that very, very heavily on me, that he doesn't care about the type of architecture out there. He cares about the type of architecture in here. And so I think it's just so cool. I had this moment where I'm realizing all the way back in February, March, God's putting this impression on my heart. He knew that come September, what would be occupying our thoughts as a church, right? The building, the architecture. And yet God is reminding us here in this moment that he is so much more concerned with the church than he is with the church building, And so I'm excited to talk about the house of God with you all. And it's a house that should look different than what culture has to offer us. The church of Jesus Christ should be different. Amen. I mean, on a house in a subdivision filled with blacks and tans and whites and gray, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God should be a bright purple house, man. It should catch your eye. And so up on the screen, I want to I invite you to go ahead and pull out your notes. We're going to put a graphic up on screen as you pull out your notes. Each week, we're going to talk about a different aspect of this house of God that I notice as I read the New Testament. Now, we're a church that worships in spirit and in truth. We want to get to the bottom of truth. We want to know what God's word has to say about these topics. And so for the house of God, week one, one of the things that I notice every time I read through the New Testament, epistles, Acts, Romans, is how much diversity there really is. The house of God is a house of diversity, Now, weirdly, that word has become political in our culture. It's become somewhat controversial in our culture, but I promise you the biblical idea and understanding of diversity, there is nothing controversial about it. It's all over the New Testament. And so today, as we talk about this, I want to invite you, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter three. We're going to talk about three different types of diversity that I've noticed as we read through the New Testament. The first type of diversity that I notice that I see in the church, in the house of God is a cultural diversity. Galatians chapter three, this is God's word to us starting in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, Then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. One thing that I notice over and over in the New Testament epistles that the Apostle Paul works through and the other apostles work through as well is the cultural diversity that happens within the church essentially cultural diversity. There are all sorts of societal lines that have been drawn all throughout history. But in the church, we see all of these cultures coming in and gathering together as one. And part of the thing that the New Testament addresses is some of the challenges that come along with that. But over and over, we see that within the church of Jesus Christ, as he adopts you into his house, the former lines with which we used to break each other down and and the lines that used to separate us are they're breaking down themselves and if you just look at how this happens in Galatians chapter 3 you, you know there there is no question that it's God that's doing it because we see in verse 25 that faith has come and in verse 26 it's in Christ Jesus that we are now called sons and daughters of God. That happens through faith. So what this means is all of us enter into the house of God in one way and one way only. It doesn't matter what background you're from or culture that you're from. You come in one way. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. He adopts us into his family. Man, I've been sometimes in churches or I've read about churches or I've seen churches and I don't spend my time bashing other churches, I promise. But I've seen sometimes where churches become so about themselves that it's like they're inviting Jesus to come on into their church. Jesus adopts us into his family. He's created it in the, one that, the way that he wants to create it. And so if you have any sort of issue with different cultures or uh, people from different backgrounds worshiping together, let me just tell you, you're going to hate heaven. You're going to hate it. If you just look at this example in Revelation chapter 7, and you guys can help me out. This will be up on the screen. You don't need to turn there in your Bibles. We'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus gives the apostle John a glimpse into what heaven will look like in 7, nine in Revelation. And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Now help me out here. They were from every nation. They're from all, they're from all and every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages are all standing before the throne and before the lamb. They've been clothed in white robes. And if you continue to read, you'll see that they got their white robes because they were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they have palm branches in their hand and they're crying out with a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Man, what a beautiful picture. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every. People groups standing side by side with all who have come before and all who will come after us, raising up our hands and having the biggest worship celebration that you've ever seen. That's heaven. And so anytime we catch a glimpse of that here on earth, that's a beautiful picture. And over and over, we see that in the New Testament, that God's house is a house of diversity. Now, I don't think that diversity can be artificially manufactured but I do think it needs to be intentional. We need to make sure that we are crossing all social boundaries in order to reach people with the gospel. And as our church begins to look more and more like what our community looks like, that happens not as a result of some program that starts from a stage. It happens as a result of a church that is intentionally building relationships with their neighbors and their coworkers inviting them to meet and know Jesus Christ. And as they get adopted into this family, this church looks more and more like heaven. The church of Jesus Christ should be diverse culturally. The second thing that I want you to see is that every time you look in the New Testament, you see that the church of Jesus Christ is diverse economically. It's diverse economically. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you just look in the book of Acts, you will see that there are both wealthy people and there are poor people worshiping together in the same church. If you look at some of the things that the Apostle Paul has to work through in some of these epistles, it's challenges between people who are wealthy and people who are poor, who are worshiping side by side. But I think the most striking example of this is found in James chapter two. James, of course, he's the brother of Jesus and James is writing. And here's what he says, because there's a problem within this church, right? He's not just writing about a hypothetical situation. He's writing about a problem within a church. And here's what he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, that's a rich person and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, Hey, you sit here in a good place while you say to that poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? It's quite simple. What the Apostle James is reminding us through the power of the Holy Spirit and his inspiration is that within the church, not only should cultural lines break down, but economic lines should be breaking down as well. I dream of a day when we have multimillionaires and single moms in subsidized housing serving on the same prayer team together. They know each other's names and needs. I dream of the day when we have people who are dressed in uh, rags and homeless are coming in because they got a ride from the guy in the nice Corvette. Okay, I dream of this day because that's what's pictured. We cannot have partiality. And for us in this church, I want you to know that it doesn't matter how much you give or don't give. This is your church body. And for us for our greeters, for our pastors, for our ushers, man, we want to pay the exact same amount of attention and give the same amount of love and care and support. And, and we want that for everyone that walks through our doors, rich and poor. The place where rich and poor should know each other best is on Sunday morning. Our society has this habit of really just dividing each other because we talk about each other instead of to each other, right? You've got people who, who demonize people with money who have no money and people who have money demonizing poor people. And neither of them know each other, know their needs, know their stories or talk to each other. That shouldn't be the case within the church and it should no longer be some hypothetical transactional thing that happens. Like, yeah, I give money, that money, you know, I pay my taxes, that helps them out. That give, you know, that's their Medicare. Within the church, it's, I know your name and I'm willing to be sacrificially generous in order to meet your need. It's not a hypothetical thing. We're going to talk more about that idea of generosity later on in the series, but the church of Jesus Christ should be breaking down these barriers. There shouldn't be rich churches and poor churches. And man, I want you to know that no matter what background you come from, you are welcome here. This is your church. And I want you to invite people from each and every background as well. The last thing that I want you to see is that the house of God, God's family is diverse economically. It's diverse culturally, but it's also diverse generationally. All over in the New Testament, the house of God is diverse generationally. We see this. Now, I, I got to tell you, when I was 25, can I just tell you a little story this morning? When I was 25 years old, we helped to plant this church. And I always think back to my first small group back in that time, just as a 25 year old. And Well, before we get to the small group story, I'll just tell you about myself, okay? I like really loud punk rock music and I love like spiking volleyballs and kicking footballs and hitting golf balls, any sports, all that stuff. I love that stuff. And so all of my friends growing up are kind of like me, right? They love those same things. And so I thought that when I planted a church, it would be like that. Like I would reach people that were like me. And if there's one thing that I've learned... In the last 13 years here at this church, number one, it's it's God is faithful and he's always working, but it's almost never going to look how you think it's going to look. And so I was relatively immature at 25. Now, some of that had been, some of that, I guess, had been, you know, challenged in me in the years before, because my very first church that I pastored at was down in Virginia. And it was people that were much older than me, much older than me. Okay, And these people were not, they didn't like the same stuff I like. This was rural Virginia, all right? I, I'm a city boy. And as they would say, this is rural Virginia, okay? And I felt like an outsider. Now, they, they were awesome. They tried to make me like Virginia Tech football. Not a chance. That's not happening. But they taught me all kinds of crazy fun stuff about spotlight hunting and running dogs and uh, They invited me to go floating with them. I didn't know what that meant. I said, yes. And I got there. And do you guys know what floating is? Here's what it is. I'll tell you. It's, I want to go canoeing, but I don't have a canoe. So I'm just going to float down a river with a cooler tied to my ankle. And we're just going to stop somewhere and eat some lunch that we packed. And it, it was a blast. It was so much fun. I love those people. But I thought when I got to start my own church, to be a part of this, that I would reach people that were like me. And as I think back on my first small group, all the way back to the beginning of this story now, as I think back on my first small group, man, I remember one day distinctly looking around and thinking like, if it wasn't for Jesus, I don't think I'd know a single person in here. None of them like sports, all of them like country music, there were different ages and life stages and generations. And, and it was just so different than what I thought it was going to be. And it was awesome. And I loved it. You see, in we, we have this habit of making church about us, don't we? We really do. And in America, especially, we're just consumers. It's what we do, you know, but we treat our churches like it's another trip to Sam's Club where, hey, you know, at that church, when that's, Pastors speak and I like him, we're going to go there. But over here, I like their kids program, so we're going to jump in over here. Or the worship is great, so we're going to do that on Wednesday nights. Or that church is too young, or that church is too old. But that's, that's not how God designed for things to be. A church isn't something that you're supposed to go shopping at. It's something you're supposed to be a part of and invest in. And the reason that God puts people within your church that challenge you, that drive you, frankly, crazy sometimes, that parent different than you, that look at the world differently than you, that love things differently than you, it's not because he's annoyed with you or that God doesn't like you or that he's mad at you. He does it because he loves you. The diversity within a church of cultures and economic backgrounds and generations is a sign of God's great love for me. I mean, just if you look back at James, he said, what did he say about the poor people? He said, hey, you need to welcome poor people in because God has chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith. That means that those who have less than you have a lot to teach you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And man, if you have ever been in a third world country or on a mission trip, you go in thinking that you have so much to offer to these people and you see how destitute the conditions are and how tough it is that they're living and you walk away ashamed and convicted because of their level of joy in Christ. We need that diversity. It's a part of our strength. Now, we better talk about generationally since I told you to write that one down. I got that as I was reading in the book of Titus, in Titus chapter two, starting in verse two, we see Titus sort of, he's speaking to each different generation within this church. Uh, The apostle Paul is writing this letter to Titus, reminding him, this is what needs to happen rather. He says, older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So Paul is giving Titus this instruction and he's saying, hey, you need to find some older men within your church. Now, up, up until a few years ago for us, that was like, hey, that guy's pushing 30. He's one of the older ones here. You'd walk through the lobby and you'd see a gray hair and a beard and you'd be like, hey, teach me. Teach me how to live life. I'm 28. I'm so thankful. I, like, I mean it when I say genuinely, I'm thankful that we have people with some truly gray hair in our church now. The Apostle Paul says that we should be able to look to those men. We should be able to see what it looks like to be faithful and steadfast, sound in our faith and love. They should be the example. Men, older men, you are the example within our church. I love the energy. My favorite group of people to hang out with, younger guys, you still make me feel young. I love that. But man, we need older men in our lives to show us what it looks like to be faithful. Don't we? And Paul continues, older women, I'm not making any comments on appearance of that. Likewise, you are to be reverent in your behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. I always wonder what is going on in this church. Paul says, he writes and he says, hey, older men, be dignified. Older ladies, stop going out on Margarita Mondays and being irreverent. What is going on in that small group over there? Paul's like, ladies, come on. He says that you are to teach what is good. Train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. The picture that we see of this church, the church is supposed to be a church in which different generations know one another and they are known by one another. Where older and younger are pouring into their, each other's lives, frankly. Sharing their challenges and their victories. Learning what it looks like to run the race for Jesus Christ with endurance well. Now, this doesn't happen all that often. And I think just to be frank, I think that churches are partially to blame because we program things in such a way that ages get segregated out, don't they? And so you've got a bunch of 20-year-olds in a small group together talking about marriage, like how to have a long, successful marriage. And there's nobody over there 15 years in like, "Uh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Don't do that. And you've got a bunch of young mothers who are there, hey, this is how you discipline and train up a child and do it. And there's no one over there being like, bad idea, bad idea, don't do it. And the reasons for this is not it's just not all on the church, though. I think that, I'll, I'll be honest, I think it's two things. I think it's pride and it's insecurity. I think for those of us who are younger, and I'm, I'm going to still classify myself that way, all right? For those of us who are younger, it's pride. We don't want to ask for help. We don't want to admit what we don't know. We don't want to humble ourselves. We like to think that we've got it under control. And for those of you who are older in here, it's insecurity. You think, ah, those young people don't want to hear what I have to say. I'm not their dad. I'm not their mom. But I can tell you, I cannot tell you how many times over the years I've had people come up to me lamenting the fact that they don't have older men and women, Christian men and women that they have relationships with that they can pour out their lives to that will show them what it looks like to follow Jesus well. It's happened over and over and over again. And frankly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank on a little relational currency here. For those of you who are older, it's your job to take the first step. You're the mature ones in the faith. You're the ones that are supposed to be leading our church. You're the ones that should be our greeters and our ushers. You should be showing us what it looks like to give generously Man, when we go to do a service project, you're the ones that should be signing up in greater numbers than anybody else. But I'll tell you something really weird happens when people hit about that empty nester stage. And I don't know what it is. And I realize, hey, you might want to come yell at me later. I realize all this, okay, even even as I say it. But something happens when you hit that age where older people just tend to like wash our hands of this and be like, all right, time for you guys to take over. And then you just jump into small groups with only people that are your age and I guess just wait to die. I don't really know. All right, I will get yelled at for that one. (laughs) But at the very time when we need you the most, it feels like it's hardest to find you. That you don't want to be a part of our small groups with our little kids running around and our messy fingers and hectic schedules. That's when we need you. And we need each other, frankly. And the Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a place where, where young and old know each other, love each other, pray for each other, care for each other. We're rich and poor, know each other, love each other, care for each other, pray for each other. We're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, different tribes, languages, tongues. Together we see that those are not the things that define us, but the thing that defines me is that I'm a child of God, that I am in his house. The church should stick out like a purple house on a street of black and white, man. Now, it's been my goal as I've thought about teaching this to give you guys practical opportunities to respond to the gospel all throughout this month. And so we're going to try something this month. um, As we sort of prep to wrap up here, we're going to try something that's a little bit different for us, okay? It's not something we've ever tried before. Um, And we're going to focus on this idea of building relationships across generations. And so on our app Okay, on the front page, there should be a thing that says mentorship. It's also on a resource page uh, that we're going to be adding stuff to each and every week this this month, covenantchurch.us forward slash resources. And this is sort of a form that you can fill out. And I want to thank Christy Parker for her help in developing this and this mentorship program. And all it says, you can pick one or the other. I am looking for a mentor or I'm willing to be a mentor. And we're going to do some matchmaking. And what I'm asking for is if you are someone who is, you can look at Titus 2 and you can say, yes, I'm doing those things. I'm doing those things. It's not about age, okay? There's 75-year-olds that are not ready to show us, spiritually speaking, what it looks like to be mature in the faith. But if you're mature enough that you say, I have walked this walk long enough. I, I can do those things. I want to invite you to sign up to be a mentor. Now you're going to get a packet that has some tricks and tips and how to do this. But really what we're asking is very simple. You're going to pray for each other daily. You're going to be in regular contact, whatever that looks like for you and your schedule. And you're going to meet once a month to talk about life and about faith and about family And about future and career and whatever else it is. And and it's your job as a mentor to point people back to Jesus, to build these relationships. And so if you are looking for a mentor, I want to invite you to sign up for that as well. It's one or the other, okay? I have no idea how this is going to go. My hope is that we will start to build some connections relationally. And as a new small group term kicks off in this upcoming week, not this week, but next week, I hope that you guys who have a little bit of gray will feel like you can join in with some of us who have these crazy young kids pour into our lives, get to know us. We need you to lead our church. Would you guys just bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me this morning? Lord God, we come to you thankful for the ways in which you have protected us, Lord, that you have watched over us, for the ways in which, God, that you challenge us through your word. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters within this church, genuinely grateful and overwhelmed by your goodness for building your church that I get to be a part of. Lord, I pray that this whole month will be a wake-up call to us. A reminder of just how concerned you are with the church that we are becoming. Lord, I pray that we will, each and every week, be challenged to take steps of obedience, practical steps of obedience, so that we might begin to be shaped more and more into the picture of heaven. And God, in all things, we trust you with the results. I'm thankful for you, God, and I love you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Now, with every head bowed and eye closed this morning, I want to spend some time. If you're already a Christian, I want to invite you in this moment to just spend some time reflecting. Reflecting on your own life, making sure that You are reaching out to people across all different backgrounds and walks of life. But I also wanna recognize the fact that there is only one way to come into the house of God and there may be people in here who have not yet become a part of that. People that would say, hey, that that scripture you read from Revelation 7, I don't know that I would be in heaven if I died today. I wanna talk to you for a moment. The Bible says that it's sin that separates us from God. It's our sin. We've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen. And because God is holy and he's righteous, he's gonna punish that sin. He's just. And that's bad news for us because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the standard that it takes to get into heaven, to have a relationship with this perfect and holy and just God. But man, I have good news for you today, which is that God loves you so, so much that he sent Jesus Christ to take the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve on himself. The punishment for my own sin was put on Jesus. He was crucified on a cross. He lived a perfect life, God's perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus the son of God lived a perfect life and he died on that cross so that our sins might be forgiven. And on the third day, Jesus showed everyone that he was who he claimed to be. He was God. He was raised from the dead. And he declared that all who would call upon his name, all who would place their faith and their trust in him could have their sins forgiven now and forever. And you can be born again. And so if you today don't know that your sins are forgiven, I want to invite you to talk to God right here, right now. God knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows your past. He knows your future. And he wants that relationship with you. If you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to start a relationship with God, if you want to start again, simply pray a prayer that goes something like this. It's not the words that matter. It's your talking to God. You just say, God, I know that I am a sinner. Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you died for me. I want to accept that sacrifice. Please forgive me for my sins. Make me brand new. I'm giving my life to you. What I've done in the past hasn't worked. Give me new life. I want to follow after you. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, I want to let you know that God... It says that God is faithful and he is just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And what that means is that if you prayed that prayer sincerely and honestly to God this morning, that your sins are now forgiven, that you are made new, that you have a new start and a new hope and a new life. And now it's time to step into it. And so if you prayed that prayer today, I want to invite you before the day is over, stop at our Connect Center. We have a gift for you. We've got some books for you that we would love to give to you. Put in your hands and tell you a little bit more about what it looks like to follow Christ. And then we want to walk with you. We're not going to leave you alone to pray a prayer and walk alone. We'll walk with you, show you what it means to embrace this new life in Christ. Jesus, we give you thanks for your goodness. We worship you and love you, the creator of all things. Thank you for purifying us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. God, this morning, we wanna just raise our voices and our hands one more time and worship to you because you deserve it. All glory and power and honor is yours forever and ever and ever, amen.